And Father, as we now prepare our hearts to come to your word, we ask, O God, that you would bless the preaching of your word. We ask, O Lord, that you would bring the message of your gospel not only to our minds, but that you would fill our hearts with it, that you would drive out any darkness in the corners of our hearts with your word. O God, that we may be conformed to the image of Christ, who is our peace, our peacemaker, our mediator, our reconciler, our savior. We ask that he would be glorified in this time and in our lives. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles with you, please turn to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to be continuing our study in the Beatitudes. Uh, Of course, the first Sunday of every month, we are studying uh, the Sermon on the Mount. Every other Sunday of the month, we are studying First and Second Samuel. Uh, but this is the beginning of a new month, so we are in Matthew chapter 5, verse 9 today. Matthew chapter 5, verse 9. Uh, you know, for several years, I don't, I don't remember when I started, and I don't even remember why I started, but every service, I end it with the same words. I give you a benediction from the Scriptures, and then I say, be at peace with the Lord and with one another, you are dismissed. That's my uh, kind of weekly dismissal, words of dismissal, right? And it's because the Christian is to be a person of peace, to have peace with God and to have peace with each other. This morning we were just singing, O Holy Night, and I think it was in verse 3. He says, with, it says, with grace and peace their lives he will adorn. That's something that should mark every Christian life. That we are adorned, decorated, if you will, with grace and with peace. And so today, that's what we're going to be talking about. We're going to be talking about Christians and the peace that we should have as Christians. Have you ever met someone only to find out eventually that that person is not who you thought they were? Uh, to some degree, I think uh, we can all relate to that. Uh, maybe it was a friend who turned out to have, you know, maybe a worse temper than you knew that he had. Uh, or maybe it was a relative who had a secret sin that you didn't know about until you did. Uh, you know, we've all uh, had experiences where somebody wasn't exactly what we were expecting them to be or who we thought they would be. Well, the Jews had expectations for the Messiah. They had this expectation uh, for the general time frame for his arrival, but they also had some expectations that the Messiah would be a mighty warrior, uh, kind of in the tradition of of David and the patriarchs who who went to war for Israel, uh, that the Messiah would be a king who would conquer through military might and would set his people free from Roman occupation and oppression. The first century Jews were hoping for a Messiah like that. They were expecting a Messiah like that. So ingrained was, in their minds was this image of a mighty warrior king uh, that even John the Baptist, of all people, John the Baptist at one point questioned whether or not Jesus was truly 
the Messiah, the expected one, as he calls him. Uh, John the Baptist was, of course, imprisoned, uh, but he was able to send a couple of his own disciples to go and visit Jesus, and uh, he instructs them to ask and to verify with him that, that he was the expected one, that he was the Messiah. And so they go to him and they say, are, are you the expected one or do we look for someone else? What a question! What a question. Consider John the Baptist, that when he first saw Jesus at the beginning of John, the Gospel of John, he says, behold, the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. He knew. He knew. Consider that when he was in his mother's stomach and he was near Mary, that he leapt in his mother's womb because he knew. And yet here he is in jail questioning everything. Is this really the Messiah? And Jesus graciously responded to them. He said to them, Go and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have the gospel preached to them. It's from Luke chapter 7, verses 19 to 22. And so the answer was, obviously, that yes, Jesus was indeed the Christ the Messiah, the expected one. But you see, he was so different from how they thought he was supposed to be, how they thought he would be, what they had imagined when they dreamed of the day that Messiah would come. So, so what had they expected? They, they'd expected a Messiah who would lead them on military conquests, kind of in the same tradition as the patriarchs. Israel, once upon a time, had been commanded to take up the sword and to go into the land and to drive out the, uh, the inhabitants of the land, drive out the people of the land, clear them out, destroying all of Yahweh's enemies. And the Jews of Jesus' time had imagined being able to reestablish their kingdom in this way. But military conquest was not the way of Christ. Military conquest was not the way of Christ. His kingdom was not an earthly kingdom. It's a spiritual kingdom that he came to establish. All the things in the Old Testament, those are types. Those are shadows. Those are things that, that point to Christ and what he would do in a spiritual sense. One of the great names used to refer to Jesus in the Old Testament Scriptures, used to refer to the Messiah, was Prince of Peace. Prince of Peace. Indeed, Jesus was at least in physical terms, a man of peace. Now, it shouldn't be surprising to us, therefore, that Jesus would preach as the seventh beatitude here in Matthew chapter 5, verse 9, as he continues in the Sermon on the Mount, the verse that we'll be looking at today. Uh, he says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. This is not at all what the Jews would have been expecting to hear based on their wrong expectations of the Messiah. Uh, they would have expected to hear, I don't know, something along the lines more resembling something like, blessed are the warriors uh, who, who slay the enemies of God, for they are truly sons of God. I think that's kind of what they would have been expecting to hear. Our study of the Beatitudes has reminded us over and over again as we come to each beatitude of how desperately we rely on God's grace. 
If there's nothing else that makes you humble, it should be these Beatitudes because what we see is that by nature, we are none of these things. As we've seen, the first three uh, three Beatitudes forced us to to look within uh, where we would find ourselves completely lacking in terms of having anything good to offer unto God. That is, to find that we are above all poor in spirit by nature. Then we were forced to see that our sin had separated us from God, and thus we could do nothing ourselves except mourn the consequences over our sin. And not only mourning over our sin, but mourning over our inclination toward it and our love for sin. And all we can do in light of these truths about ourselves is be meek. That is, be, be humbled. Uh, being meek is, is the opposite of being proud or being demanding. Rather, we saw that being meek involved surrendering any and every right, any and every entitlement, any and every privilege that we felt that we rightfully owned or possessed. The fourth beatitude in that one, we were forced to look outside of ourselves finally for the righteousness that God requires. Because there is no righteousness within us by nature. Not even a single ounce of the righteousness that God requires could be found within any of us. And thus, we hungered and we thirsted for it only to find that our hunger and our thirst for righteousness were satisfied fully by Christ whose righteousness is imputed or or transferred or credited to all who believe on Him. Fifth, because we had been shown mercy by God, by God's grace we became a people who love to show mercy unto others. Uh, This is an evidence of sorts uh, that we both have been and and will be in the future shown mercy by God. Sixth, we were made pure in heart, having a singular focus, a a single-minded desire to glorify and enjoy God in all that we do. And the seventh quality that Jesus said would characterize his people that we come to today is that we would be peacemakers. We would be peacemakers. What does it mean to be a peacemaker? Well, as with all the virtues that we've already gone through in the Beatitudes, uh, we have to start by realizing that being a peacemaker is something that can only be said of a Christian in the sense that Jesus is speaking. It's something that can only be said of someone who's been a recipient of God's transforming grace. It's not something that the natural man is capable of having or doing or or being apart from God's grace. It's contrary in every way imaginable to the ways of the flesh. Now there are some within Christian circles these days who have built huge audiences by doing things and saying things that uh, resemble uh, a warrior, right? We call them culture warriors, right? They're warriors with their words, but they do it in a way that is really ultimately just appealing to the flesh. Kevin DeYoung noted that this past week in an article uh, that he wrote in which he said that one of these men that I'm talking about, he says, I fear that much of the appeal is an appeal to what is worldly in us, end quote. Of course, I, I can understand the frustration that anybody might have 
with the culture. I understand uh, that we need people to, to speak and to speak boldly, absolutely. I, I know what it's like to be dissatisfied with the direction that our culture is going, the, the direction that the world is, is going, and with the spiritual darkness that has just increased exponentially over the last 10 or 15 years. But listen, the answer to all these things isn't to take up arms and take the nation back by force. It's not to be rude. It's not to be crass. These things are not the answer. It's not to use profanity. The answer isn't even primarily to have laws passed or or changed. The answer is the gospel. The answer is the preaching of the gospel. And so to that end, what we need is not people who are primarily culture warriors. What we need in our day and age are peacemakers. Peacemakers. The kind of people that Jesus refers to here in the seventh beatitude. Now, I'd say that this is a quality that a Christian immediately has upon conversion in one sense, uh, but it's not necessarily something that they immediately uh, use. Uh, and, and there is a difference between having, uh, having this peace and using that peace. Uh, but being a peacemaker consistently, I'll say at least this much, it, it's a sign of a Christian who is maturing or, or who is mature in the faith. Uh, But before I throw this term peacemaker around too much, I want to make sure that we understand what a peacemaker is. I want to make sure that it's clearly defined for you because there are all kinds of generalizations that the world has about what a peacemaker is or what a peacemaker might look like. Uh, might look like. Uh, We all know that there are unregenerate people out there, people who don't believe in Christ, who Uh, love and promote uh, peace, or at least their understanding of what peace is. But we can be certain that if our understanding of being a peacemaker is something that the unregenerate, that the unsaved, the unbeliever is capable of, that it's not what Jesus is talking about here. So it's not someone who just has a, a peaceful disposition. It's not somebody who just you know, avoids any and every kind of conflict at all costs or who seeks to promote unity in human relationships. In the 1960s, the hippies were known as, as a, you know, a bunch of people who loved peace right, and advocated peace uh, by, by putting flowers in uh, soldiers' guns and you know, things like that. No, that is not the kind of peace that Jesus is talking about here. Nor are uh, the peacemakers anything like the peacekeepers of the United Nations. Uh, Those are soldiers who are sent into regions of war who are armed to the teeth and they're uh, they're there to, to fight force with force. No, the peace that Jesus is talking about here isn't first and foremost a worldly peace at all uh, in the sense of being uh, the absence of conflict. No, there's actually going to be much conflict in the Christian's life. You think the war against sin is going to lead to an absence of conflict within you? No, there's going to be an escalation of conflict within us. We all know that the traditional greeting of the Jews in Jesus' time uh, was simply shalom, right? You've all heard that, shalom, which means peace. But that didn't mean something as simple as, you know, hey, I, I wish you an absence of conflict in your life. 
Uh, no, John MacArthur explains that it meant much, much more than that. Rather, it meant that the person or the party, quote, greeted will have all the righteousness and goodness that God can give. The deepest meaning of the term is God's highest good unto you, end quote. So that much is vital to our understanding of what a peacekeeper is. So, so be sure to hold on to that. This is certainly not a, a worldly kind of peace. No, as the Prince of Peace, Jesus came to establish peace where? What kind of peace? He came to establish peace between God and fallen man. And Jesus said in very clear terms, Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. That's from Matthew 10.34. And yet Luke tells us that Jesus came to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. That's from Luke chapter 1, verse 79. So is this a contradiction? Jesus is saying, uh, I, I'm not here to bring peace on earth. And then Luke is saying uh, He did come to bring peace to to guide us to peace. Uh, of course, there is no contradiction. There are no contradictions in Scripture when we let Scripture interpret Scripture. Uh, Jesus is saying that He didn't come to establish worldly peace, but Luke is telling us that Jesus is always the only way to find peace with God. So let's understand that the first thing that we can say of the person who is a peacemaker in the sense that Jesus is referring to here, is that they have believed on Jesus Christ and have therefore, therefore been reconciled unto God. This refers to a man who is at peace with God. Paul writes in Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we also have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exult in hope of the glory of God. That describes every Christian. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So this is the first thing that we can say about a Christian. And it's the first thing that we can say about someone who is a peacemaker in the sense that Jesus is referring to here. They have peace with God. God has reconciled this person, this peacemaker, to Himself through our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is what the whole Christian life is built on. This is what the whole Christian life is ultimately all about. So central is peace to the entire Christian life that Paul writes in Romans chapter 14, verse 17, that the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Now this is what you might refer to as a positional peace. A positional peace. In, this, in the sense that it's a peace that flows from our position. And the Christian's position is always, 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 first and foremost, in Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus, we have a positional peace. But there's a flowing out of that positional peace. It flows out of us. Uh, there's a practical aspect to this peace, a flowing from position 
to practice, right? The, the, practice, the practical piece comes from the way that the Christian's positional piece affects his relationships to others and to the world around him. The peacemaker is at peace, therefore, with the world in the sense that he understands what is going on in the world and why it's going on. He's not at peace. The Christian is never at peace with the world in the sense of being friends with the world. And the Christian is never at peace with the world in the sense of loving the world. Rather, he's at peace with the world in the sense that he's not confused about the, the state of the world, the, the things that are going on in the world. He knows why the world is the way it is. He understands exactly why there are wars. He knows why there are uh, crimes and why there is conflict. The Bible has told him pretty explicitly why all of these things exist. It's because of sin. That's why all the things in the world go on. It's because of sin. If there was no sin, these things, conflict, war, crime, None of these things would exist. But the reality is that sin is everywhere. There's even remaining sin that's yet to be slayed in the most mature Christians you'll ever meet. Sin doesn't just explain what's happening in the world, though, or on the world stage. It also explains why people at an individual level are the way that they are. It explains why people are self-centered. It explains why immorality is rampant. It explains why men want to play women's sports. It explains why young women statistically have become the worst serial murderers of all time. I'm talking about abortion, of course. It explains why there's greed. It explains why there's envy. It explains why there's corruption in businesses and in the government. It explains why people are so quick to take offense to even the smallest thing or nothing at all. It's often just something that the person has imagined that they take such great offense at. See, the world can go two ways on this. As, they, as the reality of sin is inescapable, they can go two ways. One road leads them to the point where they're lacking peace because they're distraught as they consider the, the very real and the very undeniable presence of sin, of, the, of these atrocities. And they can't make any sense about why these things even exist. Maybe he'll say to him, you know, it doesn't make any sense. I mean, people are basically good. And the other road leads to a much worse place, to a lack of peace again, though, because the individual is perfectly comfortable with the presence of sin. He doesn't question why it's there. Rather, he has kind of the mentality that, hey, it's a dog-eat-dog dog world, and I'm here to be a dog, and I'm here to take mine. And so he's not trying to, uh, to justify it. Rather, what he's done is he, he just doesn't have a moral problem. His conscience isn't, uh, isn't bothered by the presence of sin. There, there's no peace in seeing the world either of these two ways. There's no peace that a person can find. But the Christian who knows his or her Bible, that's the kind of person in the world who can have peace in spite of all the lack of peace in the world, a peace that passes all understanding because he understands the problem at the root level. Now, this isn't to say that the condition of the world 
doesn't cause the Christian to feel much sorrow and sadness. It does, doesn't it? I mean, aren't you brokenhearted when you see how rampant sin is in the world, when you see how much darkness, spiritual darkness there is in the world? It should cause us sorrow, but it's also a sorrow that is, it serves a good purpose because it's a sorrow that points us back to the wonderful reality that this world is not our home. And that's where peace about the condition of the world is found. For the unbeliever, unless they repent and believe on Jesus Christ for their salvation, this world is the closest thing to heaven that they will ever experience. The closest thing to peace that they will ever experience. As far as the unbeliever is concerned, because he has suppressed the truth in unrighteousness, this world is really all there is. Or, or maybe some will imagine that you know, reincarnation is what happens, and so they'll get reincarnated only to return to this world. How depressing is that? The Christian understands why the world is the way that it is, and so there's a sense in which he has peace with the way that the world is. As Martin Lloyd-Jones writes, the Christian understands that, quote, the trouble is in the heart of man, and nothing but a new heart, nothing but a new man can possibly deal with the problem. It is out of the heart that evil thoughts, murders, adultery, fornication, jealousy, jealousy envy, malice, and all these other things proceed. And while men are like that, there will be no peace, end quote. See, the best answer that the unregenerate can conjure up is to say that people just need to be more moral. So, so we need to implement some type of mass behavior modification if we want to do away with all the wickedness and corruption in the world. And while that might sound good and appealing on the surface, the Christian knows that that is not the answer. Behavioral modification is not the answer. The Christian knows that the answer to all the problems in the world is not behavior modification. It's not even merely information. No, the answer is heart transformation. And so with that in mind, the greatest need that the world has, and that the world has always had, is an increase in the number of peacemakers. And when I say that, I mean the world could and, and would always benefit greatly from having more Christians. Well, how does somebody become a Christian? Not by passing or eliminating or, or changing the laws of our country, but by people going out, Christians, peacemakers, going out and preaching the gospel, sharing the gospel with them. This is how peacemakers are made. They must hear the gospel and by God's grace, they must believe. But they won't believe if they don't hear the gospel. Now, the hyper-Calvinist might say, wait a minute, you know, I, I wish it was so easy, but don't you affirm the doctrines of grace? Don't you believe that the elect will all be saved? Don't you believe that God will draw all the elect to himself? And the answer to that is, yes, we do affirm the doctrines of grace. Uh, I, I do believe that only the elect will be saved. And this is exactly why we believe in evangelism. This is exactly why we believe in preaching the gospel. Because the catch is, and everyone who knows their Bible knows this, God knows who his elect are. He's foreknown them from eternity past. 
But you and I don't. You and I don't. Even people who reject our evangelistic efforts might still be elect. There never comes a point where we can just give up hope on a person. As far as we know, maybe the Lord won't cause the gospel seeds that we scatter freely, that we sprinkle freely on all soils to grow and take root until they've heard the gospel maybe a thousand times. I can't even tell you how many times I must have heard the gospel before God finally opened my ears and opened my eyes and filled my heart with faith to believe it. So with all that said, the peacemaker is not only somebody who has this positional peace, somebody who has peace with God, but the peacemaker also desires that others would have peace with God. And to that end, the peacemaker is concerned, greatly concerned with and desiring of the salvation of his unbelieving friends and family members and neighbor. A.W. Pink observed that, quote, the peacemakers referred to in our text are those who beseech sinners to be reconciled to God, end quote. And that should cause us to examine ourselves a little bit, shouldn't it? Do you desire the salvation of your unbelieving neighbor? Do you desire the salvation of unbelieving co-workers or friends or family members? We see this in what Paul describes in Ephesians chapter 2, the, the kind of peace that we have uh, in Christ and how it starts to, to flow out of our lives. We know that there was this long line of ethnic tension and hostility between the, the Jews and, and the Gentiles. Well, how was that exactly going to play out in the early church? Because these people had a long history of, you know, butting heads, really not liking each other whatsoever. I mean, and the first converts to Christianity were Jews. The Gentiles weren't far behind them. So how exactly was this going to play out in the early church? It sounds like a situation that would be emotionally charged in, in which there would be no peace at all. But Paul writes as a Jew, to the Gentiles, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13, appealing to them with these words. He says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. But again, what about this long history of ethnic tension and hatred and animosity between the Jews and the Gentiles. Well, one option, at least a logical option, could have been that there would be two types of Christians, or maybe you might call it two classes of Christians, that there would be uh, the, the Jewish Christians and there would be the Gentile Christians, and they would be in their own classes. Praise be to God, that is not the case. Uh, Paul says as he continues in verses 14 to 16 of Ephesians chapter 2, For he himself is our peace, who made both groups, Jew and Gentile again, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two, again, Jew and Gentile, into one new man, thus establishing peace and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by having it put to death the enmity. So Christians, amongst ourselves, we have a harmonious, a peaceful 
unity with one another because there aren't multiple classes of Christians uh, based on worldly demographics. Uh, Paul draws this out even further as he continues in verses 17 to 22. Again, Ephesians chapter 2. He writes, And he came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both... Again, Jew and Gentile, we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer Gentiles, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building, being fitted together, is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. So a peacemaker is concerned with the salvation of others. He strives and he prays for unity in Christ with them. Uh, And of course, that unity is a a peaceful unity that the Christian has toward his brethren, toward his fellow Christians. Uh, We are united together as a holy temple that God is building with Christ as our cornerstone. And this temple, by the way, the holy temple which consists of the saints, is the temple that must be built before Christ's return. People go crazy about the temple in Jerusalem being rebuilt and all this stuff and how that relates to Christ's return. No, the temple that God is building is built with saints. It's not a physical building. That was only a type, a foreshadow of what God would build in the new covenant. Christ will return when the fullness of the elect are brought into the faith. Do you want Christ to return? Preach the gospel. Share the gospel. Bring the elect into the fold. And again, how do we do that? Through the preaching of the gospel. Faith comes by hearing. The peacemaker is an evangelist by necessity. And the Christian's message is summarized so nicely with what Paul wrote to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 17 to 21, where he writes, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to God through, uh, to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry, this is important, gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling, reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors of Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. We have been entrusted with this ministry, a ministry of reconciliation. Every Christian is called to the ministry of reconciliation. Every Christian is called to be a peacemaker, to desire reconciliation between God and our unbelieving neighbor is a chief quality of somebody who is a peacemaker. But let's consider the reality that we all know it. There are church splits, right? There's the reality that we must deal with that sometimes there's even conflict between Christians. Sadly, 
Maybe you've been in a church that's split. Maybe you've had conflict with a fellow Christian. We've seen this around us. We've seen it happen. How can conflict still exist between two people who have this positional peace with God and have the unity of believers that Paul spoke of? How can there be any conflict? How can there not be peace? Again, it's because of sin. It's because of sin. Sin will not break what we might call their, their ontological unity or their, their positional unity, right? That is, that they have a unity with God through Christ in their, in their being by their new nature, regardless of uh, whatever uh, feelings might exist toward one another, whether they be peaceful feelings or feelings of animosity. Uh, but sin can cause a loss of this practical peace, this practical unity, the experience or practice of unity without disrupting or breaking positional unity. And Paul knew that. Paul knew that it was possible for there to be conflict within the church between two people who have this positional unity with God and who should have this practical unity with other believers, and yet sin would interfere. Paul knew that that would be a problem in the church from the very beginning. By the way, have you picked up on the fact that Paul was very much a peacemaker? He had so, so many things to say about peace in his epistles. Uh, but Paul said this to the early church that was striving to not only have this positional unity, but to also have this practical unity among the brethren. In Romans chapter 12, verse 18, he says, If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Now, I'm so glad that he put two qualifiers in there. Because if he had just said, be at peace with all men, it wouldn't necessarily be something that would be realistic for us to strive for. And so he adds a couple qualifiers. If possible. In other words, is there, is there any chance of it? So far as it depends on you, the responsibility is on you to, if possible, be at peace with all men. In other words, there's a, ch there's a chance that it won't happen but it shouldn't be because of you. Now, if you have two people who are truly striving to be obedient to Scripture, and, and thus you have two people who are doing everything they can to be at peace with one another, you will have peace. They will have peace with one another as believers. Uh, even with unbelievers, if we're doing everything that we can to be at peace with all men, as, as Paul says, uh, to be at peace with all people, there's a good chance that our relationships with them won't be marked by you know, antagonism and, and animosity. But when it comes to Christians and interpersonal relationships among Christians, there is never, ever an excuse for there not to be harmonious, peaceful unity between them. If peace does not exist for some reason between two Christians, it's because at least one of them, if not both of them, at least one of them, is not striving for or desiring it. But the Bible speaks at great lengths to the fact that reconciliation is always and forever the goal whenever there is an offense that leads to a lack of harmonious peace between two Christians. The goal is always, no matter how bad the offense is, the goal is always 
forgiveness and reconciliation. The difficulty comes in when only one person pursues peace, as a peacemaker always should. If you've got one person who is holding on to a grudge and the other is doing everything they can to establish and uh, re reestablish peace, you're not going to have peace. Because the one person, it, it can't all depend on them. It takes two. You know, I've done marriage counseling for, for so many couples. I, I've done marriage counseling for couples that have sinned against one another in ways that I can't talk about from the pulpit, in ways that you would never even be able to imagine. And what I always tell people when they come to me is, it's not hopeless. It's, it's never hopeless. It's only hopeless if you aren't both striving for and pursuing forgiveness and reconciliation. Because the fact is that if they both are pursuing that, it will happen. God, God is more than happy to give us the grace to lay our grudges down, to lay our, our animosity down. But the fact of the matter is that it takes only one person to forgive, but it takes two people to be reconciled. It takes one person to forgive. And we are to forgive. But it takes two to reconcile. But know this, know that when, when Paul says, insofar as it depends on you, be at peace with all men, the implication there is that we can't be a people who think highly of ourselves. If you remember, the first beatitude corresponded with the, four, uh, the fifth beatitude, the second beatitude corresponded with the sixth beatitude, and the third beatitude corresponds with this beatitude, the seventh one. What was that third beatitude that corresponds with this one? Blessed are the meek. Meekness is what is really the driving force of a peacemaker in the relational aspect. It's a person who is meek and thus doesn't, uh, doesn't seek to invoke his privileges or his rights and doesn't claim to be entitled to this or that, and he isn't easily offended. No, the person who is meek will be quick to own up to their sin. They'll be quick to confess and turn from their sin and wrongdoing toward others. He'll be eager to be forgiven and to be reconciled. He won't be looking for an opportunity to see wrongdoing in others. That is to say, he will assume the best. And even if there's the opportunity, or maybe it seems more likely that we should assume the worst, he's going to assume the best about other people, even when it's possible to assume the worst. And that is to say the peacemaker must be charitable toward others. In our day and age, this is really uh, where the, the Christian becomes completely unlike the world around us. Uh, we, we have, uh, we've seen this Marxist way of thinking creep into the thinking of so many people in our day and age. And in this, this Marxist way of thinking, uh, there's always the objective of, uh, of classifying and putting one person over another. There's always the objective of finding some kind of offense in some way, even if it's what they call a microaggression. If you've never heard of a microaggression, it's defined uh, by the UNC School of Medicine as, quote, the everyday slights, insults, put-downs, invalidations, and offensive behaviors that people experience in daily interactions with generally well-intentioned individuals who may be unaware that they have engaged in demeaning ways. 
End quote. Now let me ask you this. If you are assuming the best about somebody and you see that they are well-intentioned, are you going to take offense at anything? The answer is no. The answer is no. This is so this way of thinking, this Marxist way of thinking, of finding even microaggressions where people don't even realize, and they're not even trying to be offensive, they just are. That is so contrary to the Christian mindset. Unlike the ideology of the day, which you know, seeks to find every possible offense, including offenses that people don't even intend to make or know that they're making, the Scriptures instruct us to be slow to speak and slow to anger. It's from James chapter 1, verse, verses 19 and 20. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God, James says. See, the world is the opposite of these things. The world is quick to speak. Oh, you, you, didn't, you, didn't, you didn't signal your virtue fast enough. You, know? you, you didn't say this. You didn't say that. Uh, they're, they're so quick to be angry and so quick to speak. The Christian is the opposite. We are slow to speak, slow to anger. Now, this doesn't mean that we don't speak at all. Uh, it doesn't mean that we never get angry. It doesn't mean that we never confront anyone. No, there's a time for speaking. There is a time for getting angry and confronting others. But for the peacemaker, the goal in doing so is always to promote reconciliation and foster righteousness, true righteousness in ourselves and in others. But the key to doing all of this rightly and biblically and effectively uh, is to be meek, to have a, a lowly, humble attitude about yourself. Meekness is the antithesis of being entitled and entitled people are the ones who are quick to, to get angry and slow to forgive, slow to, uh, slow to be reconciled to others. You see Paul promoting this type of thinking with the goal of reconciling uh, what was a very difficult situation uh, in the church in Philippi. He instructs them in, a, in Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. He says, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. That is the very definition. That is the very epitome of meekness. Do, do you see how this kind of attitude, how this kind of, of humble meekness would be conducive not only to forgiveness, but to reconciliation? And, and Paul continues drawing it out in the, in the following verse, writing, Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. In verse 4. So the, the peacemaker isn't just worried about himself or, or herself, but the peacemaker has an equal or maybe even greater concern for and, and thoughtfulness regarding the interests of others. You can see, I hope, that if anyone, if everyone in the world did this, there would be no conflict of any kind. If everybody saw other people as equal to themselves or as more important than themselves, wow, there, nobody would take offense to anything. There, there would be no conflict. And this is why there will be unbroken 
peaceful harmony in the new heavens and the new earth one day because sin won't be there preventing us from thinking outside of ourselves. Sin won't be there causing us to think too highly of ourselves. There will be no sin left within us in glory. There will be no selfishness that enters through heaven's gates with us. And we know that this is how eternity will be because the flesh nature and all of the flesh's selfishness will be put to death once and for all. It will not and cannot enter into glory with us. We will be like Christ when we see Him as He is, according to 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. And this meekness that is selfless and, and considerate of others that Paul urges us to practice, that is exactly how Christ is. Jesus is the ultimate peacemaker. And so Paul sets Jesus as the example for us to follow in thinking more of others and, and considering others as he continues in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5-8, to eight, where he says, "...have this attitude in yourselves which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So the Christian, every Christian, has this positional peace, peace with God through Christ Jesus. And the Christian life is marked by the practice of this peace flowing out of us and us being peacemakers. Let me ask you this. Have you, have you come to the end of yourself? Have you seen how undeserving you are of God's grace and how deserving, how worthy you are of His wrath and yet how blessed you are that He has showered His grace upon you instead? Have you seen that God is a God of peace? The Scriptures actually refer to Him explicitly as the God of peace. If you have seen that God is a God of peace, and He is, and that He has made you His child by adoption, entirely by His grace, then how can you not desire to reflect this quality of being a peacemaker in your own life? How can you not desire to reflect that attribute or this quality of God in your own life? And Jesus says of the peacemakers, He says that they are blessed for they shall be called sons of God. This is only a very simple explanation. Very easy for us to understand. See, in Jewish thought, to be a son of something meant to exhibit the qualities and the attributes of uh, the person or thing that they are said to be a son of. Think about when James and John. What was James and John's nickname? Anybody know? Sons of Thunder. Why were they called sons of thunder? Because there was some attribute in them that resembled thunder. And so when somebody heard them talk, it was like listening to thunder, right? And likewise, in this sense, if you are a peacemaker, and God is a peacemaker, when people hear you and see you, they will see this attribute, this quality of God reflected in you, that you are a peacemaker. And so if you have this positional peace, you also know that the Holy Spirit resides within you. And if the Spirit resides in you, let me remind you that peace is a fruit of the Spirit. 
And when the world sees you being this kind of peacemaker, they will surely know that it is because God is your Father. Maybe they'll hate you for it. But maybe they won't. By, maybe by God's grace, they, they won't hate you. Maybe God will use you, will use your evangelistic efforts to draw your neighbor to himself. Either way, whatever the case may be, God is the one who is sovereign. And so either way, may God give us the grace to glorify him as peacemakers, that the world may know that we are children of the God who has created and who sustains all things, and that, Lord willing, our neighbors, our unbelieving neighbors and friends and co-workers and family members may be brought into this positional peace with God as well, to the praise of His glorious grace. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You for Your Word. And we thank You that You are a God of peace. Even when we were rebels, while we were still rebels, while we were still sinners, while we were still dead in our transgressions, You sent Christ to establish peace between Yourself and us. Oh Father, we thank You that by Your grace, we have been recipients of this peace. We thank You for the positional peace that we have in Christ Jesus, who is our peace, our mediator, our Savior, our Redeemer, who provided what You required for us to be at peace with You, and that was His life. We thank You that He shed His blood and that He took our sin upon Himself, simultaneously imputing crediting us with His own perfect righteousness in order that we may be at peace with You. Oh God, we pray that we would not only be in, a, in this positional peace, but we pray that this peace would flow out of our lives, that we would be peacemakers who desire our unbelieving friends, our unbelieving neighbors to be at peace with You, to have to, to, be a part, to be partakers of this positional peace that by Your grace You've made us recipients of. Oh Father, we pray that Christ would be glorified in our lives. We pray for peace among ourselves. We pray for, uh, for peace with our other brethren, for any broken relationships, oh God. We pray that You would go before us and work on that other person's heart uh, insofar as it depends on us, oh God we could be reconciled with that person. Uh, we thank You for Your grace. We know that Your grace is always sufficient. Each day You give us the grace that we need for that day, and we rely on You for Your grace. And we thank You for Your peace that passes all understanding. In Jesus' name, Amen.